What is up, guys? It is the Blue Bloods here with a Week 7 Instant Reaction episode, man. And we had a huge week of college football, to say the least. The craziness continued with upsets. Top teams either proved themselves, fell back to the pack, and we have so much to talk about on this episode. So, as always, if you're new, hit that subscribe button. Go ahead and like the video, man. I promise y'all ain't getting college football content like this anywhere else on YouTube. But we got to start with the huge upset of the week. Purdue, the Boilermakers, pull off the huge upset over number two, Iowa, in Kinnick Stadium on the road, 24-7. to Domination, honestly. I mean, I- I'm so impressed with the Boilermakers, man. And the Hawkeyes came in as the number two team in the country, and everyone just seemed to kind of overlook this game. They were like, okay, Iowa gets a nice, you know, a nice break after beating Penn State. But Jeff Brom and the Boilermakers put on an absolute clinic this weekend, and they they exposed every weakness that everyone's just kind of been ignoring for the Hawkeyes this weekend for a huge win. And I want to say this isn't just a fluke, not for Purdue and or Jeff Brom. Brom's now 4-1 and one against the Hawkeyes, two of those wins in Iowa City, and this is Purdue's 13th win against a team that was ranked top two in the AP poll, and it's the second time it's happened under Brom. Last time was that huge Ohio State win, you know, at home with with the the country watching. And when you look at the Hawkeyes, I understand. Iowa fans, I know exactly what's going to happen. Yes, Matt Hankins, Riley Moss, both out of bench. I mean, Riley Moss was injured last week. Hankins went down yesterday during the game. And once both these All-American corners went out for this secondary, it just – they had no answer. You could tell how much – how important they were for this scheme, for this team, and just as a leadership aspect. But when you look at this game, Purdue played an absolute spectacular game this weekend, led by stout defense and an offense that won. They only had one turnover. They didn't turn the ball over, and they dominated time of possession with over 35 minutes of possession time. And they kept Iowa from establishing that formula we've talked about on this show, which is run the ball, let Petrus make his throws, and force the other team into mistakes. And it didn't happen. They used they used the um field position battle to their advantage. That didn't happen this weekend. Everything that would go into an Iowa loss happened this weekend. You've got to give Brom and this Purdue team all the credit in the world. This defense for the Boilermakers held the Hawkeyes to 270 total yards, had forced four interceptions. Three of them came in the final four minutes of the game, guys, and it just shows how clutch they played. They shut down the rushing attack, allowing only two and a half yards per carry and 76 yards on the ground. And they might have played, this defense may have played their best game of the season, and they really laid the momentum for a possible Big Ten run if they could replicate this performance and win some games down the stretch. Now, it's going to be tough. They have a very tough schedule moving forward, including a cross-division game against Ohio State. But you look at the DN, George, uh, Carl, I believe it's Carl Fattis, but many people consider him a, a very legit NFL draft pick, possibly a second, third, maybe even a first-round pick. He had a sack, and there was multiple plays where he was just in the backfield making things happen. You've got to give him all the credit in the world. They kept Petrus uncomfortable in the pocket. They shut down the run game. And this Iowa offense, which a lot of people have just been saying, okay, they're just not that good, but they can be good enough to win. Purdue said not this weekend they're not. And you've got to give that defense all the credit in the world. And on the offensive side of the ball, against the number two defense in the country, the Boilermakers had everything click into place, an impressive performance, and everything the Hawkeyes did wrong and they didn't execute, 
the Boilermakers made him pay. Aiden O'Connell, 30 for 40 passing, 375, two touchdowns, almost 10 yards per attempt, had a 98.2 QBR this weekend. If there was, in on top of that, if there was any question about David Bell's future in the NFL, all that went to all. All that doubt was put away. He had a, one of those historic performances. They leaned on Rondell Moore a few years back against Ohio State. It was David Bell's turn this weekend. Eleven catches, two forty receiving. He averaged twenty one point eight yards per catch. Guys, he was moving the ball down the field and had a big touchdown. David Bell was the MVP of this weekend. And you look at that Iowa defense. They came in. They said we're they they had the highest interception rate in the country, and it was by a significant margin. They were forcing interceptions on over like four percent of the throws. Zero interceptions for O'Connell was the stat of the game. Yes, Hankins and Moss were out, but Iowa still had so much talent. And on top of that, they slowed down the running attack. Like, they they slowed down the rushing attack. But O'Connell was that good. David Bell had one of those historic performances. And, you know, I want to move to the Hawkeyes. They had some glaring issues over the first few weeks, and I would mention them in passing. But Purdue was the first team to really find a way to expose them, and it starts with this offense. Yes, everyone said it's average. It's not Ole Miss. It's not Alabama. It's not even Georgia. But the way the what they did, what Purdue did, is they find a way to put pressure on this defense by scoring on the other side of the football. And when you put pressure on this offense, and they have to execute, they have to score. It really took them out of their comfort zone and. When it put pressure on their defense to make stops, when the game start, when Purdue started to get ahead, the defense wasn't healthy enough to get stops, and it just put so much pressure on them that they finally broke and they lost twenty four to seven. The rushing defense, I have no problem with. They played solid. The pass rush was inconsistent though, and without the leaders in Moss and Hankins, the secondary, which has been the by far the strength of this team, really just fell apart. And Spencer Petras, man, he listen, all props to him for the first few weeks of the season. He found ways to win the game, including that game-winning touchdown pass against Penn State. But when when you have to go make a play like he did this weekend where he had to step up, the running game wasn't going, the defense wasn't performing well, and it was time for Petras to go and shine, he didn't. Four INTs. He only had 195 through the air and had a 16 QBR. This was not the performance for Petrus. This was his moment to prove he's not a game manager. He's not, you know, he can be the focal point of the offense and he just couldn't do it. Goodson in the running attack was shut down by Purdue's um, defense. The, uh, everything that could go wrong for Iowa this weekend went wrong. Now, they still have everything in front of them. They've gotten their, you know, they've gotten their cross division games out of the way. They've gotten a lot of their big, big games out of the way. They just have to keep winning. And, and you know, that's easier said than done, especially coming off a loss like this. But if they just went out, they're in the title game. And, you know, you look at what they have coming up. You know, listen, they get a bye week next week. Huge for this team to get healthy with Hankins and Moss and some of the other players banged up. And also just to recover from a shocking loss like this at home, they get two weeks to prepare for Wisconsin, which is going to be an interesting game. Iowa should be the favorite going into this one. If they win that game, everything's forgotten. The Big Ten is still wide open for them, and they should still find themselves in the top ten, I'm imagining, as the polls are released later today. But then the Boilermakers, they get, they get a big shot at Wisconsin next weekend. 
So Wisconsin is next next up on the slate for both of these teams. They both need a win there. The Boilermakers and Jeff Brown make a big statement, and that should just show any time a number two team in the country is coming to play Purdue, go ahead and mark that as an upset alert game because you got to give Brown and these Boilermakers all the credit in the world. They haven't played particularly well, well at times this year, but when it comes down to it, they go out there and make plays. And to go into a hostile environment like Kinnick, which is one of the best environments in the country, you got to give them all the props in the world. But like I said, Wisconsin up for both of these teams next. I will get to bye week. Big Ten still wide open. But let's move on to the SEC here. Georgia, the consensus number one team in the country, in my opinion, and it's Georgia and everybody else right now, especially with Iowa losing. They make a statement with a dominant win over Kentucky. Listen, if you ever need to find out if someone's untrustworthy, just ask them if they if they think their favorite team's offense can play with this Georgia defense on the field. Anyone that says yes or raises their hand is probably a liar. It's probably untrustworthy because this unit is just putting on a show, guys. I mean, and on top of that, Stetson Bennett just keeps finding ways to do it for this Bulldogs offense, and it just and they're so consistent with the formula they use to beat teams. They're going to play stout defense. They're going to run the ball, even if it's not clicking at the highest, you know, at the highest level. They're they're not going to get away from the run game, and they're going to let Stetson Bennett eat against their secondary in one on one matchups, play action, and everything like that. Listen, the Bulldogs allowed their first first half touchdown of the season, guys. Let that let that register. Their first first half touchdown allowed this season, and it didn't even matter as they win their fourth top twenty five game of the season. And this, so I, I've read some things that said this was the worst performance for this Georgia defense this year. Guys, I don't think you understand how how well how much they dominated this game. We'll get into it, but listen, Kentucky's got zero reason to hang their head. They might have played the best game against this Georgia team that we've seen since that 10-3 win over Clemson. And that included, I don't care when it happened, in the fourth quarter they had a 22-play, 75-yard, 11-minute drive down there to score late in that game. They covered the spread with that. And for me, watching this Kentucky team, the effort, the talent that they really have, I can see this team going 10-2 in the SEC, maybe even 11-1 and if they went out. Give Mark Stoops and this team credit. They were just outclassed today by a team who I don't think there's many teams in college football that can hang with this Georgia team right now. And like I said, it was a day of stout defense, running the ball, letting Stetson Bennett eat the leftovers. And why should that change, guys? If if no, if Kirby Smart understands what the strengths of this team is, why dare opponents to stop it? Why change anything? You Like I said, some people said this was not the best performance by this Georgia defense. They only allowed 243 yards, less than 50% on third downs, 4.6 yards a pass, less than two yards per rush against one of the best rushing attacks in the SEC. And they kept pressure on Levis all game, had three sacks, I believe, and did not allow Rodriguez any room on the ground. That's that's an average performance for Georgia guys. That that should put everything into perspective. They're still allowing less than like seven points per game. This defensive front, guys, the front, listen, the secondary is great. I understand they're still a bit banged up. I can't wait for Tyke Smith to really establish himself in the back end. But Jordan Davis, Anderson off the edge, N'Kobe Dean, those guys are so athletic and so physically just dominant. That I don't know if there's a team that can really that can realistically run the ball and protect their quarterback efficiently against this front. Nicobe Dean, in my opinion, 
is going to be one of the is in my opinion already the best linebacker, true linebacker in the country, not edge threat, just linebacker in the country. His speed sideline to sideline is impossible to deal with. And it allows him to be great in coverage as well. For me, he should be a top five, top ten pick when he comes out for the NFL draft because he's just that good. He he's like Roquan Smith 2.0 for this defense. And that's why I think you could say this defense could be one of the best of all time because they just they have the sideline to sideline speed. Their secondary does not give up explosive plays, and their front seven's going to hang with every offensive line in the country. It's so hard to move the ball. And when I look around college football and you're looking at who matches up well against this Georgia defense, there's not many teams that you can even make a solid argument for it. Because, one, if you're a rush first team with an average quarterback, you're already screwed because you're not going to be able to run the ball and your quarterback's going to have to make plays. Then some of these passing quarterbacks don't have the stout, the most stout O-line. You're going to get destroyed in the pass rush. So it's like who in the country is built – to really go up against this Georgia defense, and there's not many arguments to be made, and we won't have that whole debate today. But on the offensive side of the ball, yes, they may not be putting up 600 yards and being the top offense in the country, but they're going to grind it out against you, and Stetson Bennett's not going to make any mistakes. And before you know it, they're going to put up 400 yards on you and escape with a double-digit win, which is what they have done week in and week out this season outside of week one. Now, Bennett is really making a solid case to be the guy moving forward. Yes, JT Daniels is great, but the way Bennett is playing, he's been so consistent, so efficient through the air, and it really just shows how great this QB room has been for the Bulldogs. The mailman just keeps delivering is the saying that I'm going with for this offense. 14 for 20, 250, three touchdowns, and he was averaging 12 yards of completion. And he made play after play to get the Bulldogs in the scoring position and found a way to get it to his playmakers in space and let them go make plays. And the moment, for the, to me, the moment never looks too big for Bennett this season. He looks light years more improved and comfortable in this offense from at times last season. And I think it just shows how well Georgia is at developing quarterbacks right now. I mean, you can say what you want about the field situation and the from over, like, that's all fine and good. And last year, Dewan Mathis and that, that whole thing was just atrocious. But Bennett has really improved this year, and they have Daniels. They got Carson Beck. They got Vandergriff coming in. They got possibly Archie Manning coming in. You can say what you want, but Georgia's QB room is as strong as it's been arguably in program history since they had Stafford. I mean, Bennett looks every bit the part right now as the quarterback, which gives them the luxury to sit Daniels as long as they need to keep him 100% healthy. And then that QB battle can, you know, occur later in the season. But right now, you can't make an argument, in my opinion, that Bennett hasn't earned his this job right now. He is playing that well in this offense. And the biggest thing, like I said, is he just doesn't make mistakes does not turn the ball over, and that, that's the one thing for Georgia with that defense you can't do. As long as you don't turn the ball over and you just consistently just move the ball a little bit down the field at a time, you're going to win every game that you have on your schedule. So shout-out to Stetson Bennett and the rushing attack, man. It's so versatile, and they're so deep at running back that it puts the defense in a very tough situation because you get a fresh body every few plays. Cook, White, Milton, they're such a three-headed monster. And then McIntosh, when he's healthy – these guys are a legit problem, and they rushed for over 166 this weekend against a very good front seven for Kentucky, and the offensive line is gelling and getting better and better, and you've got to give Matt Luke his credit right now for having this team playing like they are. And on the Kentucky side of things, the Wildcats did what they could, but like I said in our preview, if the rushing attack isn't there, 
there's nothing you could do. But no turnovers this weekend was solid. Levis played a solid game, in my opinion. And right now, I think you can make a strong argument Kentucky's the third-best team of the SEC behind Alabama and uh, Georgia right now. And I think a New Year's Six Bowl is still in the picture for the Wildcats. You look at Levis, two touchdowns, almost 200 yards, no turnovers. And that's without some of his best wide receivers. You look at Ali uh, Ali missing. You look at Wondell Robinson being really the only true threat on the outside. He had like 12 catches this weekend. The, just the overall, the matchup here was not great with the Bulldogs for the Wildcats. You could tell the effort was there. You could tell the talent Mark Stoops is bringing into this program was there. But they have a long way to go to match what the Bulldogs have on the field. So for me, Kentucky played a solid game. It's just you could tell Georgia from the first snap was the better overall team. Now, the Bulldogs get a much-needed bye week to get healthy before they face one of their biggest rivals in Florida down you know, down in Jacksonville and, you know, the world's biggest cocktail party or whatever they're calling it now. And then the Wildcats also have a bye week before they take a road trip down to Starkville to face Mississippi State. The SEC is is going to be absolutely fun to watch, but it's kind of clear right now, especially in the East, Georgia's taken the light, you know, taking the huge lead now, and they probably almost have sealed this East race unless something just dramatic happens later in the season. Now, the other game we got to get to, man, Oklahoma State, number 12 in the country, really get, makes a statement in the Big 12 with a 14-point comeback win over number 25, Texas. They scored 16 unanswered in the sec, in, in the fourth quarter to beat the Longhorns this weekend. And, man, it was, it was something to really see. It, but this is becoming a narrative for Texas, man. This is the second straight week Texas has blown the lead. Last week, 21 points to Oklahoma, 14 points this week to a Oklahoma State team that many people had Texas the favorite to beat, even though they were undefeated. Now, it's it's weird to me because Texas, with the rushing attack that they have, you figure they could close out games because they can just rob Bajan Robinson down the stretch. He gets eight carries in the second half, guys. Make that make sense to me. When you have arguably the best running back in the country, you've got the lead, you have all the momentum, you take it out of your best playmaker's hands and give it to Casey Thompson. I can't see that working for for Texas throughout this Big 12 schedule. But let's move to Oklahoma State, man. It all started with one Spencer, Spencer Sanders making the plays when he needed to, but also this is a kid I've named in the few previews we've done for Oklahoma State. It's Utah State transfer Jalen Warren. He had his best performance of the season, 33 carries, 193 yards this weekend. And for me, he's really establishing himself as one of the better running backs in, in, in the Big 12 and maybe even the country at 5'8", 215, he might not be the most physically demanding running back, but he just has that unique ability. When he sees a hole, man, he can hit it, and he's consistent with his rushing ability. And with all the injuries to L.D. Brown and some of these other running backs for Oklahoma State, finding Jalen Warren this offseason may, may have been the biggest move for, for Gundy this offseason to get this offense going. Now, Sanders wasn't you know spectacular, but he made plays when it counted. And I think that experience this weekend really showed with Sanders being, you know, like his third year as a starting quarterback for the for the Cowboys. He went out there and made plays against the Texas defense that just got worn down. Yes, Damari um Overshone got hurt. That was a big loss, but you got to give Oklahoma State credit for going out there and making plays. And when you look, 
when you look at what the potential is for Oklahoma State, they have the entire season ahead of them. If they went out, they win the Big 12. They still got Oklahoma ahead of them, and they're sitting undefeated. They got wins over Baylor and Texas, which are really the consensus top teams, you know, left in their way, you know, left in the Big 12 race. But they got wins over them, so they got the tiebreaker. They did, they're looking straight for Bedlam. All they got to do is just win the games they're supposed to ahead of them, and that Bedlam game could be absolutely huge. I still want to see more from Sanders, though. I don't want to sit here and criticize him, but 19 of 32, 178, it looks better, but he did struggle. But the thing about it is, is like, can he turn it around? He has so much talent. And, you know, it's clear that the backup wasn't the answer. You know, last year when Sanders got hurt, it's clear that without him, they're not as good. And what makes him special is his athleticism with his legs, which I would like to see him use more often. But if Warren doesn't explode like this, was that sat line good enough to win this game? He didn't look comfortable for most of the game. So that's the biggest question moving forward is can Sanders get it together for, for the Cowboys? And, you know, for Texas – the defense has to do better. There is no way Oklahoma State should, you know, should put put up these like you had the advantage, in my opinion, in on the on the offensive line and defensive line of scrimmage. You had the better lines. So for them to put up those type of rushing yards on you, for them to get pressure on Thompson, for me, Texas has to figure out what is going on here. And they're starting out so fast. They're starting out so efficient, and then something just doesn't click in the second half. So that's something Steve Sarkeesian has to figure out. He has to try to find a way to get some gas in the tank of these guys down the stretch. But it was a huge comeback win for Oklahoma State. They, Like I said, they got the Big 12 in front of them, and both of these teams have some big games ahead. Texas now needs Oklahoma to lose twice. They or three times now because now they have two losses in the Big 12. They also need Oklahoma State to lose three times. It looks like Texas really and truly was going to be on the outside looking in of that Big 12 race unless something drastic happens with Oklahoma or Oklahoma State. But let's go ahead and just say that Bedlam game is looking like one of the most important games in the country right now. But let's move on, man. We won't spend too much time on this game. And we, you know, just because, you know, it was, it was a game a lot of people overlooked, but we got to give some props to Ole Miss escaping Knoxville. But we're talking about this game because of the chaos that ensued late in the fourth quarter, Tennessee, you know, tries to convert a fourth and like 26 or something like that. And they come up just like an inch short. I'm talking about an inch short. It's a fourth and 24 with 54 seconds left. They get probably 23 and three-fourths yard on that play. They review it. Many people thought it was a bad spot. The They review it. It's 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 upheld, and then all chaos ensued. The fans in Knoxville threw everything on the field, and it ultimately led to Lane Kiffin being hit with a golf ball. Mustard, I guess they were stealing mustard from the concession stands, throwing the mustard bottles on the field. They were cups, you know, vape pens, everything flying onto the field. There was like a 27-minute delay in this game. The teams were all up in on midfield trying to stay away from the sidelines. They had to move all the fans up, like 30 rows up, because they wouldn't stop throwing stuff. They resumed game action with a lot of the Ole Miss players and coaches having to stand almost on the field. Lane Kiffin was on the field in the backfield because of stuff being thrown at them. And for me, 
Man, listen, I know it I know it was a controversial call, everything like that. And yes, the SEC officials have to get it together because the fact there was not a camera angle, anything, and there was so much miscommunication was just atrocious on the SEC officials. But man, like can we just all agree that that cannot happen in the game? You cannot be throwing stuff at players, at coaches, especially golf balls, man. Like that's that's on the verge of assault throwing golf balls at people's heads and stuff like that. I mean, Tennessee fans have to do better. It was a horrible look for what was such a great game, great atmosphere. They do the check it out. Everyone was talking about it and for it to be ruined by a bunch of people who just were completely out of line. Greg Sankey released a very stern statement today. I would imagine Tennessee gets fined a hefty amount. And the real issue could have been if Tennessee almost won. They stopped. They had all three timeouts, which is why on the delay they were trying to call the game. The Ole Miss people, if you read their lips when they were in the middle field, were like, it's not safe. Like, we have to end this game. Tennessee, the ADs had to agree to call the game. Tennessee's AD was not going to do that. Tennessee had three timeouts. They force a three and out. They return a punt return past the 50. And on a Hail Mary attempt, Joe Milton, instead of throwing it, tries to run it in from like 20 yards out. He runs straight out of bounds. It was it was one of the worst Hail Mary attempts of all time. But they almost won. And then what happens if they st- try to storm the field with all the chaos that ensued? It was just going to be an ugly scene. Lane Kiffin was catching water bottles as he was leaving the field, had to put his hood up and be protected. Tennessee fans should be embarrassed this weekend. I mean, it was an embarrassing, embarrassing thing to happen. And then after they moved them up, they stormed up against the field. They were throwing stuff during the game. Like you could tell plays were happening and stuff was still coming out of the stands. I would imagine that there's going to be some hefty fines coming into Knoxville because it was just an embarrassing, embarrassing performance by the or just an act by the Tennessee fans. I mean, there were reports of people there. Josh Pate for 247 said he like he posted a video. There was stuff all over the place. It was a it was just a dumb situation by a bunch of people who were just just out completely out of line. But I want to talk about one player, Matt Corral, man. He had his first interception this weekend, but really and truly he could have had he could have really taken the lead for the Hosman with 230 yards passing, two touchdowns, had 200 on the ground rushing as well. He was the sole offense for this Ole Miss, Ole Miss team um, this Saturday. So really and truly Matt Corral continues his Hosman push, which is why this game was really covered as well as Matt Corral is really – being under the radar of the top Hosman candidate at quarterback right now, even though there's a season of Rattler now being benched. And it's really him and Bryce Young and Ritter are the three quarterbacks that have an argument. But the way Corral's putting up stats, you, you got to be so impressive. And Ole Miss is really in a running for a New Year's Six Bowl. Only lost to Alabama. This was a big road win in which it was a pick game. A lot of people thought Tennessee could pull the upset, but they escaped. And you got to give them credit for responding on defense after all the craziness, the big delay, the emotions of that game. Shout out to Ole Miss for pulling that one out. But, you know, final thoughts here, man. Final takeaways. One, a few uh, top 25 upsets I wanted to mention. Auburn upsets number 17, Arkansas, 38-23 in what probably is Bo Nix's best game that he's ever played at Auburn. So I had to want to mention that one. Utah upsetting number 18, Arizona State, to really take control of the Pac-12. And it's them in Oregon right now, really as the favorites to cut, to you know meet in the Pac-12 championship. That Pac-12 South, Utah takes a big step forward by beating Arizona State 35-21. 
Baylor upset BYU number 19 in the country in Waco 38-24. It was an impressive performance for Dave Aranda's squad as they really are probably the third team in that Big 12 race, and they have a lot of games in front of them that if they win, they could be in the conversation. Also, LSU upsets number 20, Florida. And I said, I'm recording right now as I just got the update. Coach O has been let go from LSU. We'll finish out the season, but we'll be let go. That breaking news episode will be coming out tonight on our channel, so tune in for that. But they beat Florida 49-42, and there's a lot of questions about Dan Mullen right now. My other takeaway is right now I think the top four to five teams are very clear. I think it's Georgia, Cincinnati, Oklahoma, Alabama, and Ohio State right now. And that's just because Ohio State's really been playing better. But Michigan, Michigan State are lurking in the background as realistic threats for that Big Ten crown. But right now, I think the top four is clear. But with how college football has been playing out this year, nothing is for certain and everything could change next weekend with a huge upset for one of these teams. But the other takeaway, the Big Ten chaos is just getting started. This conference is going to be the biggest storyline over the next few weeks, man. Four top ten teams are in the East Division, and now Iowa is tied with Minnesota and Purdue for the West Division. Who is going to survive this race and come out alive for the Big Ten? The Michigan-Michigan State rivalry. You look at the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry. These games are going to be so important this year, and you're talking about the Big Ten really being the deciding factor of how this college football playoff race is determined. And I think the Big Ten, you look at the ratings, the recruiting, this is such a good look for the Big Ten, especially after this narrative that the SEC is dominating. Right now, the Big Ten has an argument to be the best conference in college football this year. Now, the last thing, the Heisman race for me really is taking a turn. Yes, you got Corral, Young, and Ritter, but let's not forget Bajan Robinson and Kenneth Walker at Michigan State having strong cases for a running back. This is probably the first Heisman race in a long time that an outstanding candidate hasn't really emerged and just taken over college football. This is probably the most up-in-the-air Heisman race that we've had in a very, very long time. So anything can happen. So that's something to watch for as we move on to week eight next week, which is another loaded week of college football. We'll have all the previews, all the news, and everything right here on the Blue Bloods, man. So make sure to subscribe. Make sure to go ahead and comment your takeaways from all the big games, news, and storylines from week seven. This is a wrap on week seven, guys. But we'll be back with some Week 8 content. Remember, go to our community page and go ahead and submit your questions for our Week 8 mailbag, which will be live Tuesday night, 6.30 p.m. Central, right here on YouTube. But I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for tuning in. But for the Blue Bloods, we are out for right now.